0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, good morning again, and uh, once again, we'll, we're going to be turning to Genesis chapter 1, our key text, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. And this is part three in our summer series on biblical anthropology or the doctrine of man. And so far we've talked about the dignity of man and the identity of man. And today we're going to focus our attention on the purpose of man, the purpose of man. And again, just to reiterate, as we're moving along in this series, looking at different aspects of image bearing, ultimately our goal is to put together a working definition of what it means to bear the image of God. And thus far, based upon the material we've covered in the last couple of weeks, we could say that to be made in the image of God is to reflect the righteousness and the interpersonal love of the Trinity to our neighbor in accordance with our maleness or femaleness. And this definition incorporates things that we've learned over the last couple of weeks regarding man being made to represent God, to reflect his righteousness, and some of the things we learned last week about the, uh, the relationality of man and the, uh, the interpersonal relationships that that reflects within the Godhead. But this is still an incomplete definition. And so to uh, further round out this definition, we need to consider the purpose of man. So let's go ahead and look again at Genesis 1, through 28, and we'll explore the subject of man's purpose. Genesis 1, 26. then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Why are we here? Why are we here? I'm not talking about why are we here as a gathered church on a Sunday morning in Wiley, Texas. I'm, I'm asking, why did God make man? Why was man created? For what purpose? What was man designed to do? Theologians have put forth different answers to this question, but once more I'm going to turn to Herman Bavinck's essay, The Origin, Essence, and Purpose of Man, I hope you don't tire of me quoting from Bavinck. It's just that he writes with great clarity and coherence. And in talking about the purpose of man, Bavinck gets straight to the point. He says this, Genesis 1, 26 teaches us that God had a purpose in creating man in his image, namely that man should have dominion over all living creatures and that he should multiply and spread out over the world, subduing it. If now we comprehend the force of this subduing under the term culture, we can say that culture in the broadest sense is the purpose for which God created man after his image. Now, in this quote from Bavink, we see that man's vocation, his calling and purpose was to have dominion over the earth to subdue it. And this idea of having dominion and subduing the earth is best summarized, I think Bavink is correct here, by using the word culture. And consequently, this divine ordinance that is given in Genesis 1.28, that man is to fill and subdue and have dominion over the earth, it's sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate. And it's given other names as well, the creation mandate, the dominion mandate, but for our purposes, we're going to refer to it as the cultural mandate. Now, Bavinck goes on to say that this cultural mandate... It doesn't constitute the entire content of what it means to be made in the image of God, and and we've already seen that. The, The idea of man being made in the image of God is multifaceted. And this cultural mandate is just but one aspect of it. However, this cultural mandate is certainly not an arbitrary or an incidental addendum to this concept of man being made in the image of God. On the contrary, the emphasis that is placed upon this mandate... And its close relationship with the creation of man according to the image of God. As soon as God creates man, he immediately gives this mandate. I think this conclusively indicates that the image of God in man comes to expression and is made manifest as man fulfills this mandate. It is, there, it is through the fulfilling of this mandate we could say that the image of God to a significant degree is more fully explained and unfolded and realized. Therefore, if we are to properly understand our calling, our vocation, our, our purpose as human beings, we need to have a proper understanding of this idea of culture. What is meant by culture? So, We're gonna take a moment to consider the etymology of the word culture so that we can have a a better understanding of what culture is and and try to define it. And and just FYI, much of what we're about to consider, these are insights that I gleaned from a helpful little book called Plowing in Hope by David Bruce Hegeman. And it's a a short read, it's an excellent book. And uh, if you're looking to delve into this subject more fully, I'd recommend it to you. So let's look at the etymology of this word culture. The word culture is derived from the Latin word cultura, which is the past participle of the verb colere. And the word colere means to plow or to till. Cultura was originally used to denote the cultivation, the active care or tending of plants and animals. Hence we speak of agriculture, agros in Greek means field. So, agriculture is the caring and tending of soil to grow crops and the rearing of animals for food and wool and other products. And interestingly, and not insignificantly, the term cultura was also used in a religious context to mean worship. And so, the idea seems to be that in the same way that a farmer is actively fussing over his crops, so the worshiper devotes all of his attention to the deity that he serves. Thus, cultura is closely related to the Latin word cultus, meaning adoration or veneration. And this is also where our English words cult and cultip, cultic come from. Now, according to the English, uh, Oxford English Dictionary, the word culture, it wasn't introduced into our English language into about the 15th century. And originally, it was strictly used in that agricultural sense. But in the following century, it began to be used more in a figurative sense to describe the development of the mind. And so farming actually became a metaphor for the improvement of or the refinement of the mind by education and training. So we could say things like cultivating the mind or uh, plowing the, the, the soil of the heart. By the 1800s, when the ideals of Enlightenment humanism had taken hold of Western society, the term culture came to mean the state of being refined in your mind, in tastes, in manners, and to the intellectual side of civilization. And I think that we still use the word culture in that sense today. A cultured person is one who we think of as being intellectual or um, maybe well-versed in in the arts or in literature, well-traveled, a connoisseur. By the end of the 19th century, culture, that word, shifted a little bit more and it began to be used to denote more generally the whole way of life of a group or a society, not just its finer achievements. It was used to refer to the beliefs, the behavior, the language, and the entire way of life of a particular time or group of people. And I think this is primarily how we use the world, the, that word today, culture. It, its usage, I think, has become more anthropological in nature rather than agricultural. In fact, I think at this point, the agricultural, the farming metaphor is, is all but lost. When we, when we use the word culture or we hear it, we don't typically think of farming in agriculture. So that's the etymological history or backdrop of this word culture, and, and I think it will come into play in what we're about to discuss. But for our present purposes, I want to give you David Hegeman's biblically-based definition of culture, which I've modified slightly. He defines culture as the product of human acts that are worshipfully undertaken for the developmental transformation of the earth according to the commandment of God. Now, I know that this definition is lengthy, so I'll give it to you one more time. He defines culture as the product of human acts that are worshipfully undertaken for the developmental transformation of the earth according to the commandment of God. Now, I I like this definition for a couple of reasons. One, it highlights the fact that real change must take place on the earth or culture has not occurred. And the second thing it highlights is that cultural activity is a form of worship because it is being obedient to the cultural mandates that God has given to us as image bearers. Thus, to intentionally disengage from cultural activity, to intentionally disengage from cultural activity is to be disobedient to God's command to subdue the earth. And we will have more to say about that in our application section. All right, so having considered the etymology of the word culture and given our our biblically-based definition of the term, let's return now again to Genesis so that we might more clearly recognize our purpose, our cultural calling. There are several clues in the early chapters of Genesis that point us to man's cultural calling, that man was to transform the earth through workmanship and through creative ingenuity. For example... If you want to turn to Genesis 2.5, it's right there. But we read in Genesis 2.5 that no shrub of the field was yet on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. And here's the point. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. There was no man to cultivate the ground. Here we have uh, an explicit reference to man's vocational calling to work the ground and cultivate it. And then... A few verses later in Genesis chapter two in verses 10 through 12, we see another clue. Albeit this one is much more subtle. In Genesis two, verses 10 through 12, we read this. Now there was a river out of Eden that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and it became four rivers. And the name of the first river is Pishon and it flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The bedellium and the onyx stone are there as well. Why does the text mention that there's gold in the land of Havilah, along with bedellium and the onyx stone? Well, this is not an insignificant detail. I mean, every word of scripture is important and is there for a reason. So why does it mention these materials that were hidden within the earth? I think the text mentions them to clue us in to man's cultural calling. These materials were put there by God for man to unearth and to put to good use in fulfilling his cultural mandate. These are just a sampling of the buried treasures given to man to transform the landscape of the earth. I think we're meant to connect this with verse 15 that immediately follows. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, again, to cultivate it and tend it. Here again, we are explicitly told that man was made to to work the earth, to open it up. Man's special relationship to the earth is further seen in the linguistic link between the Hebrew word for man, Adam, and the Hebrew word for ground or earth, Adama. Both of these words share the same root word, Adam, which means to be red, the color red. Thus, there is a a verbal and a relational link between the, the ruddy complexion of man and the red clay of the earth from which man was formed. The etymological association between the word Adama, ground or earth, and the word Adam, man, this etymological association is meant to reinforce the relational link between humankind and the ground. Man was made from the earth, yet the earth was made for the man. Man was made from the earth, yet the earth was made for the man. Now, let us not think that man's cultural activity was strictly confined to farming or agriculture. Gold and bdellium and onyx stones really have nothing to do with farming or agriculture. Man was to use his intellect to take all of the resources that he had been given within the earth and use them to create all different kinds of cultural products. Indeed, by the end of Genesis chapter 4, we already read of some of Cain's offspring making musical instruments and others of his lineage becoming craftsmen of bronze and iron. But let us not think that cultural activity is restricted to to industry, to the processing of raw materials and the manufacturing of goods. In naming the animals, Adam was engaged in a form of cultural activity. It required careful observation and analysis, which is the basis of all science. Adam didn't flippantly give names to the animals. He... He put thought into all the names that he gave them. I have no doubt that he gave every creature a a somewhat thorough inspection before giving it a name. We can infer this from the thought that he put into naming his female counterpart and wife. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's, He's observing, he's analyzing. She shall be called woman because, that word because is a cause and effect kind of word. There's reasoning taking place. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Again, that word because indicates to us reasoning, thought. In fact, Adam is actually using wordplay. Just as man, Adam, was taken out of the ground, Adama, so the woman, Ish-Shah, was taken out of the man, Ish. In Hebrew, there's two different words for man, Ish and Adam. And so Adam is playing on the word ish to indicate the concept of unity and diversity, which we discussed last week. The woman is like me, ish, but at the same time she's different from me, isha. And later in Genesis 3 verse 20, Adam gives his wife the proper name Eve. Why? What is the reasoning behind this name? And the text tells us because, there's that word again, that cause and effect word, because she would be the mother of all living. In Hebrew, that word is chava, which means life giver. Or in the Greek Septuagint, Zoe, means life giver. Thus we see that Adam was very thoughtful in the names that he chose. He observed and he studied and he reasoned before he came to a conclusion. And so again, this is the foundation of science. Furthermore, when Adam first saw Eve, his response was very poetic, as we just read. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In the Hebrew, it's, it's very rhythmical language that he's using to express his joy at seeing the woman. And so this is also a cultural act. It was a foreshadowing of the arts. And so cultural activity, it encompasses husbandry and agriculture, industry and manufacturing, science and the arts. To quote Herman Bavinck, yet one more time. Dominion of the earth includes not only the most ancient callings of men, such as hunting and fishing, agriculture and stock raising, but also trade and commerce, finance and credit, the exposition or the exploitation of mines and mountains and science and art. We see then that man has been engaged in cultural activity from the very beginning and that it's very broad in scope, this cultural activity. And this should make sense to us when we realize that cultural activity is fundamental to our purpose. Man was made to create culture. Eden Eden was a temple. And man's purpose was to expand the borders of Eden and transform the entire earth until it became a global temple of community worship. And even though man has now fallen and the cultural mandate, uh, it, it hasn't been rescinded even though man has fallen. The purpose of man has not changed. As Christians, we're still expected to worshipfully develop and transform the earth to the glory of God. And we do this in a threefold way, as prophets, priests, and kings. So let's talk about that for a moment. Man was made to be a prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, man was to think God's thoughts after him. He was to interpret reality in accordance with the revelation that had been inscribed upon his heart and that had been delivered to Adam. Man was to proclaim and uphold the truth throughout all of his cultural activity as a prophet. As a priest, man was to serve God by developing and transforming the earth into a cosmic temple of worship. All of the work of man's hands in cultivating the earth was to be performed in service to God, to the glory of God, and to facilitate the worship of God. And as a king, man was to rule in righteousness over the lesser creatures, to be a good steward of all of the resources of the earth that he had been given for fulfilling the cultural mandate, and to govern all things in accordance with the law of God. Thus we see that man was made to fulfill his cultural mandate according to the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. We're told in Genesis 2.15 that man was made to tend and keep the earth. And as we read in Genesis 1.28, he is to exercise dominion over the earth and to subdue it. In tending the earth, in tending it, in working to develop it and transform it into a cosmic temple of worship, man would be acting as a priest. In keeping the earth, in watching over the earth and guarding it from evil intruders, man would be acting as a prophet, keeping to the truth, we could say. And in subduing the earth, in exercising good stewardship of the animals and the plants and the other resources that he had been given, and in his governing and ruling, man would be acting as a king. Now, when man, when Adam sinned, part of the curse that resulted was that the earth would no longer be fully compliant or cooperative. It would no longer be completely subject to its king. We read this in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, where God is pronouncing the curse upon Adam. And he says, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. The ground that I had made you to cultivate and to tend to and keep Now it is cursed. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here we see the retributive justice of God, where that, that concept of you reap what you sow. Just as man had rebelled against his king, God, so the earth would now rebel against its king, man. The earth would not be so willing to yield forth its fruits. Only with great effort would it now allow man access to that rich treasury. Barriers of resistance were put in place, thorns and thistles. The ground was cursed such that sweat and pain would be required for man to to eat and live. And not only plants, but the animals too would no longer be as obedient and submissive to their ruler. In fact, some animals would become savage and even shed man's blood, which is why God tells Noah in Genesis 9, 5, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it. And so the implication there is that there are some beasts that would shed man's blood. Not just plants and animals, but all of creation was subjected to futility by Adam's sin and is even now eagerly longing for liberty, groaning to be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, as we read in Romans 8, verses 19 through 22. But even though the creation has been subjected to futility and is now in a a state of rebellion against man... Nevertheless, man is still expected to fulfill his cultural mandate, to to act as a representative prophet, priest, and king. And because this is man's purpose, he intuitively engages in cultural activity, even in his fallen state. The problem is that all of sinful mankind's cultural activity is directed inward toward himself. Rather than toward God. We see an early picture of this, I think, in Genesis 11 with the construction of the Tower of Babel. As mankind began to repopulate the earth following the flood, it says that many people migrated east and settled in the land of Shinar. And they said to themselves, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. They were engaged in cultural activity but it was all directed towards self-worship. They were communicating with each other, but they were doing so to encourage idolatry. And so they were acting as false prophets, which is one of the reasons why God confused their speech. They were developing and transforming the earth. They were were baking bricks and making mortar to build a city and a, a temple tower, but it was all being done to glorify and worship the name of man. And so in this way, they were acting as false priests. They were exercising stewardship of the resources they had. They were ruling and governing so as to build a city and a kingdom. But all of it was being done in defiance of the law of God. And so in this way, they were acting as false kings. We see then that man was made to produce culture according to the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king However, as a result of the fall, all of man's cultural endeavors are directed toward sinful ends so long as he remains outside of Christ. Christ, the second Adam, was the perfect image bearer because he perfectly fulfilled this threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And when we're joined to Christ, we begin to be conformed to his image and we are reinstated as true, righteous, true and righteous prophets, priests, and kings once again as we were always intended to be. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 2.9, a familiar passage to most of us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here in this verse, we see that in Christ, we are royal kings. We are a royal priesthood, priests that proclaim as prophets the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And please note, when, I'm, when I say that we're made prophets, I'm, I'm using that in a small p sense, not a capital P sense. The canon is closed. There's no more special revelation being given to man. What I mean is when we forth tell and proclaim the word of God, we are acting as prophets in the little p sense. At any rate, only in Christ are we able to once again fulfill our purpose of cultural transformation as prophets, priests, and kings to the glory of God. Now, there's one last aspect of this cultural mandate that I think is important for us to consider, and that is the necessity of community, the necessity of community, In order to fulfill his cultural calling, in order to develop and transform the earth into a a global temple of worship as a prophet, priest, and king, Adam was going to need help. And lots of it. By himself, Adam couldn't possibly fulfill the command to subdue the entire earth, to have dominion over all of the fish of the sea and over all of the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Such a task is far too great for one man to achieve alone. Thus, God created Eve to serve as a helpmate to Adam in fulfilling the cultural mandate. Together, Adam and Eve were commanded to be, to be fruitful and multiply and to, to populate the entire earth with image bearers who would work synergistically to develop and transform the earth into a communal temple of worship. Developing and transforming the earth is a complex, multifaceted activity that requires an equally wide ranging array of skills and talents. Not every cultural activity is going to utilize the same gifts. The set of skills that makes for a good goldsmith are very different from the talents required to be a vine dresser, or a musician, or an architect. Many different skill sets would be needed innumerable men and women with unique and individual giftings working cooperatively together would be necessary for man's cosmic temple to be realized. And it's clear that even after the fall, God continues to assign to every one of his image bearers differing gifts and talents, both in type and degree, in order to facilitate the fulfillment of his cultural program for man. Immediately after the fall, we see vocational specialization. Abel, we're told, was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. The text doesn't tell us why each brother took on the occupation that he did. It could have been that they had innate abilities which suited them to the particular type of job that they chose, or it could have just simply been a matter of preference. But what is clear is that they chose two different occupations that were both related to the themes of dominion and working that had been developed in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And so even after the fall, God continues to bless every man and woman with specialized natural talents and proclivities that are meant to be used in a communal effort to fulfill man's cultural calling. There's a couple of beautiful examples that are given to us within Scripture where we see gifted men and women working together in a communal effort to fulfill man's cultural calling. One of them is the construction of the tabernacle, and then later on in Israel's history, the construction of Solomon's temple. In both of these instances, God called specific gifted individuals to lead the effort Bezalel and Ohaliab, in the case of the tabernacle, and Hiram in the case of the temple. But there were many other individuals who were gifted by God for these tasks as well. With regard to the tabernacle, in Exodus 36, verse 1, we read Bezalel and Ohiliab and every craftsman, every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. If you have time later today or or throughout the week, go back and read Exodus chapters 36 through 39 and see how, how big this construction project was, how many things needed to be made and how many people would be necessary to do it. Many different skilled men and women were needed to construct the tabernacle. And the same was true later on with the construction of Solomon's temple. In fact the variety of occupations used in the building of the tabernacle as well as the temple is astounding. Lumbermen, carpenters, spinners, dyers, weavers, embroiderers, seamstresses, metallurgists, goldsmiths, engravers, jewelers, tanners, perfumers, quarry workers, and stonemasons. And then there were those who provided direct uh, logistical support. Toolmakers, keepers of animals, seafarers and laborers. In addition to the craftsmen and laborers, there were those who were involved in the worship activities themselves after the sanctuaries were completed. Priests and attendants, musicians, singers, musical instrument makers and, and psalmists, musical composers. This, I think, is what fulfilling the cultural mandate was really meant to look like. The tabernacle and the temple, I think, were both emblematic on a small scale of the grand diversity which was to mark the global cultural endeavor given to man in the Garden of Eden. And these things, I think, point us forward to the wondrous cultural potentialities that will be released after the return of Christ and the consummation of all things. When a glorified, sinless humanity fulfills with perfection the cultural development of the New Earth. And we'll discuss that topic more next week. Now, in the time that remains, I have six points of observation application. And the first one is in the form of a question. How are you shaping the culture? How are you shaping the culture? Notice the question is not, are you shaping the culture? The question is, how are you shaping the culture? All of us are shaping the culture to some extent. We we can't help it, it's what we were made to do. This is an interesting thought. I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but I mean just consider our surroundings right now. Just just this right here. Think about the building. The chairs, the carpet, the sound stage, all the instruments, the microphones, the computers in the back. Everything that we see right now, our clothes, all of it, these are all the product of the work of man's hands that he's used from materials of the earth. And then if we were to go outside the building, you see concrete that was made for a parking lot, you see automobiles used for transportation, paved roads, you see telephone poles, you see telephone poles and wires, telecommunications, I mean, and on and on it goes. And so marvel at how man, even in his sinful state, has developed and transformed this earth. He can't help but fulfill this purpose, his cultural calling. It's what we were made to do. But please note that shaping the culture is not exclusively about making stuff. It's not exclusively about that. I know we've talked a lot about craftsmanship and using the physical resources of the earth to transform the earth. But the earth is developed and transformed by our speech as well thoughts and ideas that are not physical. Man is both physical and spiritual in nature. And so his cultural activity is both physical and spiritual in nature. Remember, man was made to be a prophet as well as a priest and a king. And so both the tongue and the hands of man are actively plowing the earth in spiritual and physical ways. So with all that in mind, I ask you again, how are you shaping the culture? How are you shaping the culture of your work environment? Do you keep and defend and proclaim the truth as a prophet when you are around your colleagues and clients? How are you shaping the culture of your home? When people come to your home, do they see Christ-honoring culture taking place there? You parents who are acting as prophets, priests, and kings to your children, who are in the process of raising up the next generation of image bearers, how are you shaping the culture of your family? How are you fostering culture with your children? This past Christmas, my wife and I, we decided to buy a a 20-gallon fish tank, a little tiny aquarium for our three young daughters. And it has been quite the cultural undertaking, let me tell you. There's been a lot of having to figure things out, some, a lot of uh, fish dying, and um, there's a fish graveyard in our, back, our backyard now, and there's been some moving eulogies by my daughters. But in all of this cultural activity, uh, it has knit together our family in wonderful ways. There are, there are many times where we just continue to gather around the tank and enjoy having dominion over the fish. And... My wife, over the past few years, she's become somewhat enamored with plants, and she's constantly trying to grow different things, and, and she and the girls, they've, they've planted sunflowers and pumpkins and cilantro and many other things, and it's beautified the inside of our home, it's, it's beautified the outside of our home as well in the neighborhood. Our girls are constantly creating fairy gardens in the backyard, or drawing or painting or, or making beacorns, these little creatures made from acorns and sticks that they glue together with hot glue. And and these, these cultural products are a blessing to me and my wife. We love to see their imaginations at work and their talents being given expression. They're doing exactly what they were made to do and we're trying to cultivate that. But above all, throughout all of our family cultural endeavors, my wife and I are trying to plow their minds with the truth to sow the seeds of the gospel within their hearts. We're always trying to direct their hearts to the vine, to Christ, so that they would abide in him and bear much fruit. How are you shaping the culture of your family, of your children? How are you shaping the culture of your church and your community? I think of just this past week, as Dan mentioned, the 40 or 50 different people who were involved in in setting everything up for VBS all the costume design, the, the decorations, the teaching. Various people using the different gifts and talents that they had to come together and, and try to foster that culture within the local church body or the community. I, I think of Christina Johnson and what she's done with the Sunshine Acad- Academy and, and others who help her, Shani Lively and many others. They're, they're teaching children music and, and dance and theater and that's fostering culture not only in our church, but in the surrounding community. I think of Jerry Thompson. He's a a jack-of-all-trades kind of guy. And he's helped me on on different things I've had at at the home because he's got a skill set that I don't have. And I know he's done the same for many of you here. I mean, many, many examples could be given. How are you using your talents and your abilities that God has gifted you to foster culture within your church body and your community. How are you shaping the culture of the city, the state and even the nation in which you live? You know, as citizens of America, we have a unique privilege where we get to be actively part of the political process. We can even run for office. But at the very least we can vote. And certainly the people who we vote into office or the legislation that we vote for or against, all of that has huge ramifications into how our culture is being shaped as a nation or a state or a city. Are you engaged in that? Are you part of that? How are you shaping the culture? And then on the flip side, again in the form of a question, how are you being shaped by the culture? How are you being shaped by the culture? Application number two. All of us are constantly being barraged with the sinful propaganda of the world. And if we're not careful, we can soon find ourselves consuming and propagating its lies. On an individual level, we have to always be careful to filter the ideas that are being presented to us, whether it's in the music that we listen to, the television shows or movies that we watch, Podcasts that we listen to, uh, how we engage on social media, the, the news that's reported to us, we're always having to filter that. We are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Everything our mind takes in is always to be held against the standard of God's word. On a church level, how many churches have compromised the integrity of the gospel due to worldly cultural pressure? How many churches are now embracing and even celebrating same sex relationships and transgenderism? How many churches are now promoting the divisive and the destructive ideology of critical race theory? How many churches are more concerned with sinful virtue signaling and scoring cool points with the world than they are with keeping the bride of Christ pure and unspotted from the world? Brethren, we are not to be conformed to the sinful culture of this world. We're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. However, guarding our minds from being conformed to the sinful culture of this world, it doesn't mean that we are to disengage ourselves from cultural activity altogether. Because, and this leads to application number three, to intentionally disengage from cultural activity is to be disobedient to God's cultural mandate. We said that earlier. To intentionally disengage from cultural activity is to be disobedient to God's cultural mandate. For some decades now, many pastors have been of the mindset that the church is to be disengaged from cultural activity, especially with regard to political issues. Many pastors have bought the dualistic lie that life is to be divided between the sacred and the secular. They have fully accepted, imbibed, the doctrine of what is referred to as pietism. And and pietism is the idea that Christianity really should just be a purely private matter. And that God's law really doesn't have much place at all when it comes to the governance of nations. According to this view, issues that fall within the realm of politics, sociology, education, economics, etc., well, they're not really to be addressed from the pulpit, to to get engaged in culture wars, the so-called culture wars, well, that's just to get entangled in that which is deemed secular. Thus, the culture wars of the day are really to be ardently avoided for the sake of preaching the gospel. According to this, uh, sorry, this, this is an incredibly naive and unbiblical view of the gospel. Such false compartmentalization of the gospel, it implies that there's nothing secular in the church. That there's no secular weeds, sinful ideas that the enemy is actively sowing within the minds of the people that need to be confronted with the weed-killing power of the word. Conversely, this false dichotomy implies that there's nothing sacred with regard to culture and society. That holiness within politics, for example, is just, that's a categorical impossibility we're not to view the world in terms of sacred versus secular. Rather, we are to view the world in terms of obedience versus disobedience to the lordship of Christ. And Thankfully, the pastors and teachers of this church, they don't subscribe to this doctrine of pietism. And they have not been afraid to engage in the culture wars, and they have addressed them head-on from this pulpit. As Christians, we are not to intentionally disengage from cultural activity for to do so is to be disobedient to God's cultural mandate. Application observation number 4. All forms of class warfare undermine cultural community. All forms of class warfare undermine cultural community. As we observed earlier, fulfilling the cultural mandate it necessitates community. And this points us back to man's identity, doesn't it? Community implies relationality, relationships. And as we learned last week, man's identity is inextricably linked to his relationality. Thus, the communal efforts that is necessary for fulfilling the cultural mandate, it reinforces man's identity because it encourages relationships, it encourages relationality. We need each other if we're going to work synergistically to develop and transform the earth in obedience to our cultural calling. The Lord has gifted all of us in different ways and to varying degrees. And he doesn't distribute his talents as equally among us. He gives some of us one, some of us two, some of us five. Therefore, inequality of blessing is not unjust. I've said that before, but I think it bears repeating. Inequality of blessing is not unjust. Therefore, economically driven class warfare is wrong because it fails to acknowledge that God's unequal distribution of blessing and talents is not unjust. And because it undermines cultural community. Indeed, all forms of class warfare undermine cultural community, whether they be economic in nature or ethnic in nature. And so so, socialistic ideas, including the forcible redistribution of wealth or ethnic ideas pertaining to critical race theory, these types of ideas are to be rejected because they inevitably lead to cultural impoverishment. These ideas fracture communities and they dissolve relationships between people groups. All forms of class warfare, they undermine cultural community. Fifthly, in whatever work you do, do it to the glory of God. In whatever work you do, do it to the glory of God. Man was made to work. Work is not a product of the fall. And all of us, as we've already said, have been given different talents and abilities by God that are to be employed in worshipful service to him. You young people, you have a vocational calling. God has gifted each one of you with natural talents and abilities. Prayerfully seek the Lord's will for your life. Ask him to reveal to you the best way that you can be of service to him. Those of you who are now retired, continue to use your skills and your your knowledge for the benefit of God's people and for your surrounding community. You know, my dad is retired. But you wouldn't know it by how active he is. He goes to local school board meetings and he speaks out against the garbage that's taking place in the public schools. Right now he's in California at a, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, a homeschooling conference. He goes to these all the time and he he speaks out to, to parents at the importance of raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and having a biblical worldview. He's very active. So if you're... If you're retired, continue to look for those opportunities to teach the skills and the knowledge that you've acquired to the younger generations to inspire them. And for those of us who are currently plying our trade, let us always do our work as unto the Lord, as an act of worship, remembering that we shall all have to give an account of how we invested the talents that we've been given, and that to those of us who have been given much, much shall be required. Sixthly, and lastly, this one is also in the form of a question, and it's primarily directed at those who, are, who might be unbelievers. To whom is your cultural service being directed? To whom is your cultural service being directed? As we've already observed, all of us are shaping culture to some extent. All of us are acting as prophets, priests, and kings in some capacity. To whom is your cultural service being directed? There are only two kingdoms in this world as I think was one of the themes of the VBS this last week. Now, granted, one of those kingdoms is illegitimate. There's only one legitimate kingdom, and that's Christ. But nevertheless, the Bible does speak of two kingdoms, and you can only be in service to one of those kingdoms. You cannot serve two masters. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. You either belong to the kingdom of light, or you belong to the kingdom of darkness. You're either under the lordship of Christ or you're a captive of Satan doing his will and serving his illegitimate domain. To whom is your cultural service being directed? To whom is your allegiance? There's no neutrality. You must take sides in everything that you think and say and do. If you don't belong to the prince of peace, then you belong to the prince of this world. If you're not joined to the God-man Jesus Christ, then you're joined to the God of this age. And all of your cultural activity is misdirected in worshipful service to Satan rather than to God. All of the talents that you've been given to be used in the service of God are being misused and misappropriated. And it will not go well with you in the day of judgment. As we learn from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, Matthew 25, You will be judged a wicked and slothful servant because you did not use the talents and abilities that God blessed you with to advance his kingdom and fulfill his cultural mandate. And you will be cast into the outer darkness as a worthless servant where there will be weeping without end and gnashing of teeth in ageless agony. If you would escape this end, if you would fulfill the purpose for which you've been made, come to Jesus Christ believe in him repent of your sin kiss the son of god while you still can lest he remain angry with you and you perish in the way blessed are all who take refuge in him let's pray father again we just we thank you for your word we thank you for what it teaches what it teaches us about you what it teaches us about ourselves, our dignity, our identity, our purpose. Lord, we thank you that you have blessed each and every one of us with different talents and abilities that we are to use in service to you. Help us to do this. Help us to use our talents to magnify the name of Christ and to be instrumental in advancing gospel-glorifying culture in our generation. Let us work zealously for our great prophet, priest, and king, the Logos, the Lamb, and the Lion. And it is in his name that we pray.